Hey team of Eternal Optimists, it's Matt Rincon here. And before we launch into today's epic conversation, I've got a big announcement. Drum roll, please. My brand new book is coming out on March 8th. And perhaps even better news, you can get it for only 99 cents on Amazon that day. We don't run ads on the show. And if you ever want to give back and support the Eternal Optimist community, go to Amazon on March 8th and get the Kindle version for only 99 cents. Just search for the book title, The Eternal Optimist. It's never too late. And you can download it directly to your device. Now, let's get to the show. And welcome to another hopefully exciting episode of the Eternal Optimist podcast. And I have a friend of mine here who, when you look on paper and see his name, I'm sure that there have been some teachers on the first day of school that have said, Kasem Aslam, Kasem, is Kasem there? And I'm sure everyone gets your name wrong. It's Kasem. It's like awesome with a K, Kasem. Awesome with a K, Kasem. And if you haven't heard of Kasem yet, my friends out there, then you're going to want to listen to this very carefully. You're going to want to Google him, go down the rabbit hole. This is one of the most amazing humans I've had the privilege of meeting in the front row dads through business, through seeing him as a dad, by seeing him as a genuine human and a husband and a father. I think we're in for some good stuff today, not to set the expectation too high. But Kasem, how are you today, my friend? I'm living the dream, Matt. Appreciate being here. Excited to chat with you. Yeah, Matt. Well, you said you live with a dream. Uh, what is... What is the dream? What is it for you? I get to do what I want to do when I want to do it with who I want to do it, which sounds maybe childish, but I just feel empowered. And I haven't always felt that way. And so I really, you know, truthfully feel very, there's something about it that's kind of scary because there's no excuses. You have no Mm. excuse when you're in that position, but it's also nice to just like any direction I want to go. Yeah, I can go. You, you may not feel like you have any excuses now that you're in this position. Did you make a lot of or many excuses in getting to this position? Oh, dude, my whole life has been one great big excuse. I'm still not good at this. My default is not an acceptance of responsibility from an innate perspective. I viscerally push blame. So if something goes wrong, it's instantly, where can I house this? And generally not on people, because I don't like that. It's usually circumstances. I like to blame circumstances. And I was listening to my new entrepreneurial hero. It's Alex Ramosi had a podcast interview. And he, he basically goes, look, if you're sitting at a stoplight and you get broadsided at a stoplight, that's on you. You're responsible. You're not mm-hmm. at fault per se, but you now own this event that took place in your life and you are responsible for it. And you were responsible for acting you know, upon it and doing what you have to do. And you just haven't done that as well as I would have liked, historically speaking. And so I'm trying to, I'm trying to you know, work that muscle just a mm. little bit. I wonder when you try to work that muscle, because that sounds like complete extreme ownership. Jocko talks about it. Alex is talking about it. I got to own everything in front right. of me and see what I can own in it. You had to have owned a lot to get to a place where you're one of the top business entrepreneurs, you're on the speaking circuit, you've sold the company, you've done great in business. I can't imagine that you were the person that made a lot of excuses and you placed a lot of blame on circumstances to the point that it tripled you. So, uh, well, I hope this doesn't start to sound elitist, Matt. I'm going to do my best and we'll, we'll see if I come out 
smelling like a narcissist, I'm comparing myself to myself. The thing that I think I've done really well is I try not to compare myself to others in either direction because context is so, so important. And so if you think about it from a Pareto distribution perspective, people think the Pareto distribution is 80-20. It's not. It's the square root of the total participants equate to 50% of the output. And that's staggeringly different than 80-20. The square root of the total participants equate to 50% of the output. So like if you're talking about 10 people or 10 events or 10 things, that just means that three people, let's say we're talking about people to make the example easy, three people will do half the work out of 10. So you have a group of 10 people, three of them are going to do half the work. That's not that big a deal. You've seen that in your own life. You're like, okay, you've got some overachievers. But if you're talking about a million people, then a thousand of them are going to do half the work, half the work. And so what we do to ourselves or what I think we do to ourselves when it comes to trying to be more efficient is you say, well, I'm just going to focus on that half, whatever it is. I have a million tasks, but a thousand produce 50% of my outcome. So I'm just going to focus on those thousand tasks. Well, now it's a question of perspective because what we've done is we've zoomed in, but within those thousand tasks, you still have a Pareto distribution. So now it's a hundred of those tasks are responsible for 50% of your output. And then you zoom in again and you say, oh, I'm just going to focus on the hundred. And you keep going like this. And so from that perspective, I can tell you, I don't think I've taken extreme ownership the way that I should have, but my level of analysis might be zoomed in a couple of standard levels of deviation closer than somebody else potentially. I'm just operating at a, and I'm not saying a different level is in a higher level. I'm operating at a different level. Some people are far above me. Some people might be catching up. But from my perspective, where I stand right now, when I take who I want to be and who I am, which is living in the gap, isn't it? As I'm saying it, I can feel that. I do feel like I need to close that gap. I feel like I just need to own circumstances because I get a little like, man, if it just wasn't that way, well, what are you going to do? You're not God. You don't have cosmic power. It is this way. Deal with it, live with it, own it. And so I think I've done enough of that to, you know, I've achieved a fair degree of success, again, along certain levels of analysis. You might look at other parts of my life and say like, well, that's a dumpster fire. But money's how we keep score. And it's the most sterile. It's the easiest yardstick. You know, I've got that going for me. And in order to do anything from an entrepreneurial perspective, you do have to assume ownership. So I think I've done that okay if I were to allow myself to compare myself to other people, but that's a dangerous game for me to play. I think that's a dangerous game for anybody to play. One of the most dangerous games of all. I totally, totally agree. Not enough to anyone. Uh, I, I used to get me in trouble comparing myself to my father and can raise the level uh, family and our legacy. And that's a lot, a, lot, a lot of work and analysis through that got me to a, a place of peace. Uh, that was the way I did it. And it sounds like you're aware that you try not to do it. Uh, I don't think there was a narset. You're, it, what I, if I were to make, try to make it simple the way my mind explains it, it would be there's a big dartboard and some people are starting on an inner, inner, inner level. And your level of focus is down to, uh, most would say the bullseye. You're probably like, no, I'm way out here on the board. Well, that's what happens when you look at the bullseye, it expands, you know, and now it's a deeper level of resolution. And then you zoom in again and it expands. And so it's always going to occupy your entire field of view. But the question is, is how I, dude, I love the bullseye analogy. That's a perfect way to articulate that. Yes. Yeah. And it's always expanding, as you say. Right. You'll never get there. Are you always in search of more? Is there enough? Can you be supremely focused on the bullseye or is it an unsolvable, unwinnable game because it keeps getting 
bigger as you go in, bigger as you go in. On a macro level, I think life is an unsolvable, unwinnable game, and it should be. On a micro level, I think that you can and should accomplish goals and move on. I think about this with money. My current financial goal at the moment is I want $100 million net to me after taxes. And I say this maybe 50 times a day. You can see how it's become rote and routine because that's the way that I internalize those things. And it's unlikely I don't get that. Again, not to sound arrogant, but you know, your peak income statistically speaking, it happens at around 55 years old. I'm 38. I've already achieved a decamillion milestone. The odds of me not hitting 100 million sans economic catastrophe are pretty slim. I think I could get a billion. But that's when you start to play these games where is the juice worth the squeeze? Like what is 100 million going to cost me in terms of time, uh, focus, energy, the trade-off with my kids, my wife, my friends, the participating in other endeavors. And so far I've done the arithmetic and I actually like the balance there because, and I don't need money for money's sake. If you saw my house, I live two standard deviations beneath my tax bracket. I drive a 40 year old Honda. I wear the same black shirt. every. I don't need like, not that there's anything, I'm not wealth shaming, but the thing that I like about money is access. I want to be in the room where the decisions are made and I want to be able to impact the world and help people in the ways that I want to help people, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So hundred million bucks is nice because that's the line of demarcation where I think you no longer are inhibited from a financial perspective, pretty much across the board. You can do just about anything you want to do with $100 million. And then from $100 million to a billion, now I start to wonder, like there's a point of delineating returns and have I found it? And I don't think I'll know until I get there. But to the question that you asked, like, you know, can you get focused beyond where value would be found? I think the answer is yes. And I have friends like that who I'm going to go lob grenades at. But it's funny because we've had this conversation where they're like, I don't want or need any more money. And I'm like, dude, what are you doing on the merry-go-round? Get off. And they can't. Like they can't walk away from, because they're in this zone where it's coming so fast and so often and it's so much. And for whatever reason, they're programmed to where they can't say no to it. And then I have a couple of friends that really have like said, hey, I'm checking out and this is good. And man, I've never met people that are, and dude, you and I know some of those same people, they're in front row dads. They couldn't be more at peace, you know? And there's a couple of them that if they wanted to play the game again, they could really be doing it at a high level, but instead they're like, you know, I'm going to go take three months off and tour Europe with my children. Hell yeah. That's awesome. Yeah. I love that. I, I heard, if we're talking the poker chip table here, I heard some important chips for you, time, focus, energy, and then you went to focus with time with your kids, with your wife, with your friends, all of that to play the game of access is what you want most. Uh, well, those are the chips you're playing with. You want access to be in the room where decisions are made. Are you going to run for president one day? No, oh, God, I couldn't. Number one, I have too many skeletons in the closet that will all come out to haunt me. Number two, and this will get awkward, but I don't believe the president has any real power input, to be honest with you. I love this country deeply. I carry a copy of the Constitution in my backpack. My father's an immigrant. My mother's American from all the way back. We're related to Thomas Jefferson. I have some deep psychological roots as it relates to the US of A. I think philosophically speaking, the experiment has run its course from a doctrine perspective as it relates specifically to our standard operating procedures. And I'm trying not to say anything that's too incendiary. And a, a lot of that just has to do with the fact that, I mean, you know, it was 250 years ago, right? Like we wrote a bunch of shit that was awesome at the time and now it's non-functional. And we have a system of governance that is literally for sale. 
like you would consider me a laissez-faire capitalist and I can explain to you why what we have isn't really capitalism because we don't really actually have capital. But philosophically speaking, I'm something of a rabid libertarian, let's say, if you wanted to put me in a box. And even then, like medicine should not be a profit-seeking endeavor. Or you get what we have now, which is just a bunch of drug peddling doctors. Like there's not an allopathic doctor that I wouldn't chemically castrate. I think 95% of all continuing education is funded by the pharmaceutical industry. There's no such thing as healthcare. And that's one example of 100 million. Lobbyists own everything, the country, from international affairs to trade routes and distribution and access, the way that our financial system is structured. I forget, I think it was Teddy Roosevelt. I forgot who said it. Forgive me for misattributing the quote, but it was something to the effect of, if people actually understood how our banking system runs, there'd be riots. So I don't think the way to change that type of thing is from within at all. I think the way you change that type of thing is a lot of it has to do with timing, but it's what I want. It's having access to the conversations and the resources that would be necessary to, you know, from the outside, it's like a ship, you know, you can't really steer a ship as much as you can just kind of guide its course. So I hope that wasn't too much of a departure. I realize I soapboxed there a little bit. I don't think it's too much of a departure. And certainly as an incendiary, I mean, these are thoughts that people think and they just shut their eyes and look back down because I think like that. I don't want to an opinion out there like that. I just want to kind of be there. Uh, so I'm with you and someone comes along every once in a while, maybe there's the 10,000 in a million, but maybe that's the number. Uh, someone comes along that has the power to influence the ability to influence others in a massive way. And you may or may not, you may be one of those people. And if you're using your powers for good, whatever you could call good or the greater good, whatever it might be, there might be a possibility that that broken sim could evolve or change with the right people guiding. If you were named one of those. It's the money, dude. The biggest problem that we face right now, our money is not real. Fiat currency is an open air conspiracy. And Matt, it's vile. It's vile what we've done. And we've done it. And again, I'm going to sound like a socialist when I say these words. You ready? It's vile what we've done to the working man or the working person. Because the way that fiat currency works, money is a method that we use in order to encapsulate time. Money equals time figuratively, but they're about as intricately entwined as anything in the economic system. So you're going to pay me an amount of money that I can use in order to avail goods and services that I would have otherwise had to expend time for. So what we're doing with money is we're encapsulating time. And this is, I think, a ubiquitously accepted construct. So I'll stop trying to buttress it. When you have the ability for a private institution, by the way, that's not even owned by the government. That's what most people don't wrap their heads around. The Federal Reserve is not we don't own that as the people. A privately owned organization can print that shit anytime they want in any amounts that they want and lend it to us at interest. It's slavery. Here's the thing about slavery. This is what's interesting to think about is if you're a slave, what that means is you have to work for me. And if you don't, at the tip of a spear, I'll take away your food, your lodging, your freedoms, whatever, whatever I want. Well, that's slavery, right? But that's a one-to-one -one relationship, which is why it's easy to identify. You have the slaver and you have the slave. The only reason we don't identify our slavery in the moment is because the slaver has been distributed. So right now, if I don't pay my property taxes, I mean, my house can be paid off, but if I don't pay my property taxes, somebody's going to come take my house. The money that I've earned is being printed in a way that devalues that every single day. So my time is being 
it's inflationary, but not the way that standard commodity loss would be inflationary. You take a person who should be able to support themselves by the sweat of their brow, which is what we used to do, right? We didn't live the levels of opulence that we live at now too, which is another byproduct of the fiat currency, which is an interesting conversation. But a person used to be able to support themselves and their family. Go all the way back, hunter-gatherer. Why isn't that possible now? That's the other thing that people don't realize. Barter is technically illegal. You have to use this fiat currency. We're taxed on the fiat currency in multiple ways. The tax burden is well over 50%, regardless of what tax bracket you're in, because people don't consider things like property taxes, sales taxes, excise taxes, you know, car registration. Like It's just tax, 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 tax. On top of the fact that we have a fractional reserve banking system where a bank can lend more money than it has by multiples of, I think, nine. And that's the other thing too, is it doesn't make sense. You hear this and you're like, that doesn't make sense. And I'm like, I know, I agree. It absolutely doesn't make sense. That's why we can't have capitalism because we don't have capital. The root of capitalism is capital. And capital will require something that is scarce. That's why all the gold bugs are obsessed with gold. And you hear all the Ron Paul guys like, oh, we got to go back to the gold standard. I don't know if I agree with that, but all commodities are scarce. We could do the corn standard if you wanted to. You know, we could do the ladybug standard. It doesn't matter. There's only so many ladybugs in the world and you can't print more ladybugs. And so we know that if I work for you and you give me ladybugs in exchange for that, and we've all decided that I know I can go to the baker and get bread for ladybugs and I can go to the butcher and get meat for ladybugs, then the ladybug becomes a way for me to protect the time that I gave you. But if you've got a guy that's got a ladybug printing machine, that person owns you and me. Because they can be like, oh, I know I have 100,000 ladybugs and all you have are 10. And then we go and we scrimp and we save and we earn and we invest and we whatever. And we're like, all right, we've earned more ladybugs. And he goes, oh, I just printed more. And by the way, and this is the part that gets really interesting, I'm going to give it to my friends. Oh. Right? Like it's just an unbelievable incendiary. Like it's, 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 bro, it's I a feel file. like we're recreating it's a shrug right now as we speak. This is it. <laughs> a little bit. And that's the other problem is you can't have these conversations without sounding like an absolute fanatic, which is why I never have these conversations. But it's nuts. It's nuts that we all just sit around. And again, it's open air conspiracy. This is all factual information. Go read this creature from Jekyll Island. I'm not saying anything up to this point that you couldn't verify on Wikipedia. Like this is all 100% true. And you take to that and you add the tendrils, right? The tendrils are things like, well, we do have a commodity-backed currency because it's technically the petrodollar and it's being backed by oil, which is why we've allied ourselves in ways that have maligned human decency. We've, in many ways, destroyed entire cultures. Again, at the tip of the spear, and, and this is the worst part, this is the part that's the most shameful, we've kept the entire cohort of emerging nations compressed down. The reason 50% of the world lives on less than $2 a day is because they have to, at the tip of a gun, use the dollar. They have to use the dollar in order to get energy, which is the most important economic, what would you say? It's the cornerstone of all economies, energy, right? Be that wood burning, coal burning, oil, whatever. And so the most important at the moment and for the foreseeable future, energy-based commodity has to be purchased with the dollar. Well, if you're a poor country, and you have to buy the dollar, we're in this monopolistic system to where I'm like, I can pay you whatever I want to pay you. And so all of our luxury and all of our opulence is bought in this pernicious way. And what sucks about non-fiat currency, a commodity-backed currency is you wouldn't have explosive growth the way that we have. You wouldn't have you know, investment bankers and these Wall Street morons making $100 million a day. You'd have slow and controlled growth. And you'd also have a difficulty mitigating certain risks, you know, the potato famine in Ireland, like things like that would actually be 
damaging and they would be harder for us because at the moment you just print more money. COVID happened, print more money. And that's a really easy band-aid to get very addicted to. But the problem is, is you start to create a chasm that's so broad instead of taking the punch on the chin one time and being like, all right, we're getting through it. It's basically injecting yourself with cancer every time until you're like, there's no coming back and we're going to die. And we're there now. We reached critical mass from a fiscal perspective. I think in like 1992 was when they decided that we'll never be able to pay off our national debt. And I might have those dates wrong, but it was something like that. You know, I've got the gist right. Like we will never be solvent, which is, again, I mean, the Bible says it, neither a borrower nor lender be. This is, it's an unbelievably broken system. And if we had real money, and I won't go all crypto on you because I don't even know if I believe that that's the answer. But if we had real money, people wouldn't be enslaved. You as a, as a person, a guy, a guy should be able to raise a family of four breaking bricks on the side of the road. And we've taken that away from people. And dude, that's the thing. I look at Uber drivers. I travel a lot. So I take a lot of Ubers. And you know, the thing about the Uber driver that really inspires me is those are not lazy people. Every Uber driver I've ever talked to that drives Ubers for a living, they're always like 10, 12 hours a day. And they're like, well, you know, I can make my own hours and whatever. They don't understand how it's really not. They're not making the $30 an hour they think they're making because they're not factoring in all the, you know, associated cogs with driving an Uber, especially floating the vehicle or leasing the vehicle from Uber if that's what they do. But these are people that want to work. Now, for whatever reason, they might not be capable of the type of work, like they couldn't be a radiologist, let's say. And that, I think that's implied and again, that maybe sounds elitist, but it just is what it is, dude. People exist on the spectrum. And I'm of the opinion that if a person is willing to do that amount of work, they should be able to maintain a minimum standard of living that would match the median of whatever societal substructure they're a part of. And that's not the case. And I'm telling you, this is somebody who's one of the 1%. Like, there's something about the way that we're playing this game that is wrong. And it's not about leverage and it's not about hustling. It's not about working hard. It's about the fact that if you've got a sub 115 IQ, you probably can't make enough to make ends meet. And I don't think, not that I don't have any real strong theological commitments, but if there is a God, that's not the way that he built the world. You know, that, that shouldn't be the way that things are. So you feel free to just jettison this episode completely, Matt, because I've gone off the rails two times now. Let's stay off the rails because uh, I love where it's going. It's gone somewhere and talking about a place that a lot of people don't even talk about because they don't ask the question, number one. Number two, they don't put the opinion out there. They simply quietly just hope. You know? And I want to offer hope on the show. If there's anything I do want to offer, I want to offer you can do it too. You can ask questions. It's okay to ask them. And it's okay to think for yourself. And it's okay to learn from people like Cosmo. You don't have to buy everything he puts out. Simply ask a question. Why do you think that? Help me understand it. If your viewpoint were not true, what might make it not true? If it is true, then what makes it true? And under what circumstance would it be true? I, I love that. And, and that, I was talking about it on my live stream this morning that uh, I think about something like abortion. That's a, that's a big controversial topic 25 years ago. Actually, the Supreme Court is pretty controversial to some people nowadays too, right? And I grew up in a faith that you don't talk about that. You don't do that. That's like killing. You don't do that. And the first time that uh, someone was assaulted and I had to drive them or I chose to drive them to the clinic because that's what felt right to me, that made me start to question. And I've been questioning ever since, which is why I'm not judging anything you're saying. I love everything you're saying because I love you. And I just want to ask questions without any judgment. And, and I feel if we can get to a place as a society where we don't just ask questions without ever making commitments or decisions, 
and we are able to ask questions. I don't think we're there. Or at least I don't think we're there until we have people like you who are able to have the conversation and justify through logical debate uh, how you got to that conclusion. So anyways, I, I love talking to you for that reason. That and because you have this long hair, you know, and you're strong. I know you're doing that. This is just my midlife crisis. Can you talk about, I saw something, I think it was on Instagram. You're doing the cold plunge stuff now, if I'm not mistaken. I have some health issues. I have mercury poisoning. My brother and I both have it. Mercury is one of the most toxic things that can be in the human body. It's more toxic than radiation. Chances are I've had it my whole life. And it causes like really extreme issues. Neurological disorders are the scariest ones. Bone density loss, joint pain, massive fatigue, like just all the, like your whole body just basically starts to shut down. And this started for me about 15 years ago and I didn't know what it was. And the only way I could manage it, especially the fatigue, that's the part that would kill an entrepreneur as you can imagine. The only way I could manage it is through habits. And so I got really addicted to habit formation. And I track my whole habit journey on Instagram. If anybody's interested, I post every single morning my habit stack, which is pretty extreme. I wake up at four o'clock in the morning and then I work out and I do my deep work and I do my sauna and I do my cold plunge. And the cold plunge is the newest major addition. And it, I started doing it once a weekend at a place here in Phoenix called Optimize because there's a PubMed study. I bet you I can find it here. There was a guy in the 1800s, an illiterate farmer who was able to cure people of mercury toxicity using cold water exposure. Uh, his name was Vincent Presnitz. And it was in 1842. And there was a, a lot of mercury toxicity back in the day because mercury was used for a lot of things from an industrial perspective. If you ever heard of Mad Hatter's disease, that's what Mad Hatter's disease is, mercury poisoning. And you go crazy. like It's eating your brain, literally. People with mercury toxicity's brain masses decrease by 20 to 30% by the time they die. And getting it out is dangerous. The guy who invented the currently commonly accepted form of chelation, his name's Andy Cutler. His books are back right behind me. Cutler died at 60 because he overchelated himself. So mercury is so dangerous to have in your bloodstream that your body can't stores it in your cells and your bones and your bone marrow and your organs. So like my mercury, the doctors think is in my brain. My brother's is in his spine. And when you try to take it out, you need to put enough in your bloodstream to where it's a relevant amount for you to chelate and then capture using a binder, but not so much that you shut things down. And so it's this real horrible balance. And then while you're going through your detox, you feel horrible all the time. Like you've never, you've known me for, I think a year and a half or two years now, Matt, you've never seen me without a headache, not once. Now it's varying degrees of headache and I have varying degrees of capabilities. We played basketball once and I don't know if you remember this, but I almost took out Phil Stutz. And it's because when I run, I feel like my head is in a fishbowl. And so I just needed to leave the basketball court. So anyway, all that to say, the only thing I could do to manage this was habituate my actions. And the cold plunge, it helped my symptoms. I've tested since starting and it hasn't helped my toxicity, but it's helped at least, especially the pain. It's helped the pain for 90 minutes after the cold plunge. I don't feel nearly as bad as I usually do. So you're using a cold plunge and it's helping with the symptoms. It's not helping with the actual level of toxicity, but you're continuously experimenting using your habit formation to find a way to eliminate the toxicity or, or manage the pain and symptoms or both. That would be the hope. Yeah. There's a doctor out of Kentucky. His name escapes me, which is funny. That's probably the mercury. I'll think of it in a moment. I'd love to give him a shout out if I can, but here's what's terrifying. And this speaks back to O'Harold's one of our earlier discussions a moment ago. 
he created a compound called OSR. And uh, Boyd Haley is his name, Dr. Boyd Haley. He was a professor at the University of Kentucky for 20 years. He was a very well-funded professor, had a lot of money for research from organizations that are government-funded. He creates this compound that can remove mercury, so he claims. And it's the only one of the only compounds that can chelate mercury and breach the blood-brain barrier, which means it's one of the only compounds that can actually take mercury out of the brain. Here's what's interesting. Dr. Haley has been able to prove in clinical settings under peer review that mercury is the only chemical known to humanity, the only chemical that exists on Earth that could cause Alzheimer's. Further, Alzheimer's didn't appear Nobody had ever been diagnosed with Alzheimer's until 50 years earlier, we started using mercury in amalgam fillings. Now, the FDA shut him down, took his funding, basically destroyed the man's career because mercury being used by dental associations and then more specifically, and I think this is really where the smoking gun is, by pharmaceutical organizations, specifically and strictly in vaccines. I'm not an anti-vaxxer, by the way, but mercury is in vaccines. The government didn't want an association made between mercury and Alzheimer's. And so they take all of Boyd Haley's funding and they basically tell him to pound sand. He's doing clinical tests in Columbia at the moment. He's raising money. I reached out to him to invest. What's interesting about that is 20 million people a year die from Alzheimer's. And an Alzheimer patient's brain decreases in size by 20 to 30%. And Boyd Haley has been able to prove there's not another chemical compound on the planet that you can show anybody that can do to a brain what mercury can do to the brain. And that's exactly what happens to an Alzheimer's patient. And the current powers that be refuse this acknowledgement. Again, because we have this weird crony capital system that allows for that in order to protect private interests, more strictly speaking, the pharmaceutical organizations. So there's potentially a supplement out there that according to Dr. Haley could cure me in four weeks. And the government has said, yeah. We're not going to green light it, but if you have resources, can you not buy it? Or is it not being made because of that? I can, but well, that's what's really interesting. I'm an accredited investor. I had to reach out to Dr. Haley and say, I'd like to invest. And it's not enough to be able to say that you're going to invest so you'll get the supplement. But on the heels of that, you'd have to imagine that I'd be put in situations to where, you know, if I needed to fly to Columbia and participate in the trial that they're running. But that's all resource-based, isn't it? You'd have to be able to take the time away, fund the travel, stay in a place that's safe enough during the... It's a travesty. And there's so many people that Mercury's been connected over and over and over and over again to autism in children. The reason Boyd Haley first got nailed is because a bunch of women started a Facebook group. He was selling OSR as a supplement and he made no medical claims. It was an antioxidant, basically, like a really strong antioxidant. And these women started saying, this is curing my children of autism. And the FDA came to him and said, you can't say that. And he said, I'm not saying it. They're saying it. And then the FDA said, well, they're saying it on your behalf. So we're going to shut you down. So you'll still, there's a couple of Facebook groups. I'm a part of two of them that talk about OSR. They try to buy it. There's uh, chemical plants in China that produce OSR. But according to Haley and a few objective independent chemists, they're not producing what they're supposed to be producing. It's not either pure or in some instances, real OSR at all. And it's naturally derived. It comes from, I think, like something that's found in cranberries and then something that's found in animal fat. And I don't know how chemistry works, dude, but he did that's whatever right. magic poof shit that chemists do yeah. and like created this thing. This is just one more yeah. puzzle piece 
that is connecting in my brain today. Check this out. In the last 60 days, a dear friend and client recommended I read a book. I got this book called Empire of Pain. I'd never heard of the Sackler family before. And I read this book. It's like five or 600 pages. I read it in like two weeks. Just can't put it down. And then oddly enough, the show Painkiller comes out on Netflix. Yeah. Like at the exact day that I finish it, the show called Painkiller comes out. Have you heard of the show? It's about the pharma industry. It's fascinating about this. And yeah. then my friend says, you should listen to this book by RFK, the guy that's running for a Democrat president. It's about real Anthony Fauci. It's like two years ago, right? And I've heard of it. I never read it or listened to it. And I listened to it for about 15 hours over my trip over the weekend. And now you're talking about this. And the FDA, 20 years ago, happens to be Fauci was in charge 20 years ago, and now back to pharma. So all of these things come out, or all of them are just causing me to ask more questions. Not any judgment, just curiosity. And it's interesting when you get to a place where you get shut down, no more questions are allowed. To me, that is where the poop is. Yep. Yeah, the truth or where the poop. The truth that's, is. Yeah. that's where the stuff is. And you're able to talk about it. And I appreciate and respect you for being able to have conversation and share things. What we didn't talk about. My brother was, uh, he spent five years in prison and five years on the streets. He broke his back when he was 19 years old. He owned a moving company. Fell off a third floor balcony onto a second story overhang, broke his back. Some quack doctor prescribed whatever it is, the oxys or Percocet, whatever the synthetic opiate is. Sammy gets hooked on it and they're saying there's one in every family now. He goes to prison and I asked him, I said, Sam, do the people in prison that you meet in prison, do they belong there? And Sammy said, none of them belong here the first time, which I thought was really telling. But each one of them, once they go to prison the first time, gets criminalized, and then they come out, and then now they belong in prison because you've given them access, and you give them resources, and you give them peers, and you know people to learn from. But it's just a bunch of nonviolent victimless crimes that we then you know lock up and put in this animal factory to set loose on society, and then go make real trouble. Hmm. Man, sorry to hear that. How's your brother doing now? Is he? He's better. Still a struggle. Yeah, but a lot better. He's been out for. Four years, I think. Yeah. And he, he's brilliant. He's a 160 IQ. He's the smartest person I've ever known in my entire life. Um, mm. Just got caught, you know, on the wrong side of being able to manage pain. The day that he got out or the day that you got to see him physically and embrace him, what was that like for you when you got a chance to see him? Dude, it was interesting because, you know, I remember a little skinny heroin addict going in. He comes out of prison and he is like, he looked like Achilles just perfectly sculpted and all he did in prison was work out and read and so if you ever talk to my little brother man there's nobody more devastatingly intelligent articulate well-spoken and because you know he came from this other realm of life he was on a four yard that's where you are with the murderers and he wasn't in protective custody which is where you know we'll call them the pansies in prison go and so you've got a dude that can actually handle himself and He's not who you'd expect on either side of that aisle. You know, he's like a philosophical thug. (laughs) He's just an anomaly, dude. He's impossible to describe. He's absolutely impossible to describe. And what's really funny about Sammy too is he's so gentle and he's so kind and he's so empathic. But then you put somebody like that in situations like, you know, he was in a meat grinder and they come out ground. So, yeah. Well, somehow... During the course of our discussion, my camera's gotten so excited and connected to you that it decided to malfunction. So that's why you can't see me anymore. But I certainly, I'm here and I hear you, man. And I feel that when you talk about Sammy. And I'd ask you this, now that uh, you've shared some of the chips that are on the table, 
for costs and the time, focus, energy, kids, wife, friends, those are some of the more important chips to you and access to something. What's driving you right now? If there's something that is your biggest why right now in your world, what is it that comes up for you when I say cost and what's your why right now? My children are the obvious answer, but maybe a cop out. If you don't mind something more specific, I have a I won't call it a dream. I'll call it a goal. I was raised by a blind single mother on social security disability in Albuquerque, New Mexico. And what's interesting about that story is that's one of the stories that my mentor, Greg Smith, probably told you about me. But in retrospect, I was a trust fund baby, if you really think about it, because we were on welfare. You know, Social security isn't welfare per se, but it's basically, it's ostensibly the same thing, right? It's like the government sets aside this money for people that need it. And that's a trust by definition. And there's a whole world out there that doesn't have that trust. And so what I'd like to do is I'd like to employ a thousand single women in emerging nations. And the business that I just recently sold, Solutions Aid, I had a hundred employees and 85% of them were in emerging nations. And I pay more than anybody's willing to pay. And I let them work from home on their own schedule. But you know, if you hire somebody in the Philippines or South America and you pay 1500 bucks a month, 1500 US, like that's life-changing. And they're just as talented and smart as you and I. They just happen to be, again, in an economically depressed environment. And a lot of that economic downward pressure is, I don't want to say our fault because I'm not trying to go all like white guilt. You know what I mean? It's a multivariant situation and it just worked out this way. But as participants in the system and as one of the winners of the system, you hold some culpability. You can't not. And so I have an idea for a business called 3X Freedom where I build training materials and help these, and it wouldn't just be women, but my focus would be on women, but help people in emerging nations learn how to operate as freelance resources based off of whatever level of analysis they're interested in. So it's like, oh, I'm good at copy. I'm good at design. I'm good at client management. I'm good at sales and whatever. I'm good at data. You kind of help them travel down those rabbit holes, seize whatever happens to be there, achieve a level of employment, but do so in a way that protects them because so many outsourced resources are taken advantage of. I can't tell you how many job interviews I do with people who are like, yeah, my last employer just stopped paying me. You know, we went three months, six months without getting paid. So I would be the intermediary that's there making sure that I'm protecting the resources and, and helping the organizations bridge that gap. Because there's cultural differences, language differences, you know, things that need some massaging. But the number in my head is a thousand. And what's interesting about that is I tapped a buddy of mine, his name is Mark Todd, really brilliant guy. He's in my mastermind. He's one of the greatest authorities on online challenges I know. The way that I was going to launch this was to start an online challenge. And so I said, hey, Mark, here's my plan. And Mark kind of shamed me a little without even knowing. He's like, why a thousand? He's like, dude, we can do 10,000. We'd probably do 10,000 in this challenge. We'd probably do 100,000. And I just started thinking about that. And I'm like, man, if I really wanted to put my mark on the world, like that feels, because if you help a mom make more money than she'll ever make anywhere else, working from home on her own schedule, that's a ripple that, cascades out long and far. You know, those kids have a better life. That family has a better life. That nucleic structure is more sound. The extended family, like you've just, it's more than just lifting the resource access. You know, like you're changing or influencing, especially if you did it intentionally community by community, you could change whole countries, worlds. And within a generation, imagine, you know, my mom wasn't around. So me and my brother, my brother went to prison. I got in a bunch of trouble as a kid and it was just a lack of parental supervision. Dad wasn't there. Mom had to work. 
You know, I went to a last chance school for kids that got kicked out of all other schools. If you had access or if, you know, parents had access to the type of resources that would allow them to be parents, man, the domino effect there. And then they have the money to provide for their children. And you have things like monastery education or organic food or things that you and I might take for granted. Like, so that's the plan, dude. We'll see how far I get with it, but that's where I'd like to go. Man, just to sit here on this side and to be able to see you work through that, share that out loud, I'll draw a comparison. When we started today, I asked you a little bit about yourself and you started to say a hundred million net after taxes, and that can help me to you have the access to be in the room where decisions are made. And you were totally clear. You repeat it. It's your habit to say it over and over again and to be a part of that. And when you're describing this, I can tell it's not quite habit yet. You haven't quite said it over and over yet. And if there's anyone I've ever met that has the ability to do it, I mean, You've got it. I mean, this is the Eternal Optimist podcast we're all looking for. I'm not going to say a champion or a hero or go so far as to say a god. I don't want to say anything of that nature. Just another human that has this potential, this calling. And I'm inspired by you, Custom, and I'll follow. So you bring it out and just keep doing it, man. Yeah, I just challenge you on one thing, my friend. Here's the challenge. I'm ready. The challenge is when you just described that, you used a lot of words that you could or if it could rather than I am or we're mm. going to, you know, more of the words that it's going to happen. And I know you're just working it out and you're not on trial here. And no, it's a good I note, believe though. in you. I appreciate that. So those are a few thoughts. Kasim, I see you've got a book back there. You said you're sharing some of these habits every day on social media. Tell us what are the social media places we can find you? We want to follow you and learn with you. I'm on every channel at Kasim Aslam. I think the place I probably spend the most time personally at the moment is Instagram but it's wherever you want to engage. And to be honest with you, somebody else manages my socials. So it's all the same content, you know, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, YouTube, reach out. would love to chat. Okay. Fantastic. If you could recommend, let's just say, I see a lot of books on your shelf. If there's a particular book or a few that you might recommend for an audience like this of optimists, of entrepreneurs, of people that want to continue to spread positive, what might you recommend? That's so hard. The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People by Stephen Covey is probably the most impactful book I've ever read for me. It might have just been timing, but every time I return to it, I find something new. It's a well that runs very deep. Anti-Fragile by Nassim Nicholas Taleb is probably the most important information I've ever been exposed to from an entrepreneurial perspective. Mm. And if you want to know how to make money in a resilient way, it's a concept you have to have. I love Principles by Ray Dalio. I think that's the most dense like value per minute you can get out of any book because it's literally just bullet points and hundreds of thousands of them constructed over the course of a lifetime by one of those most successful men in history. I like The Power of Now by Eckhart Tolle, which is a little more esoteric. Mm -hmm. um, the one thing by Gary Keller is basic. Yeah, I mean, it could be an, an infographic really, but again, conceptually, it's such a critical bottleneck that's necessary to entrepreneurial success specifically. And those are the nonfiction. We could talk fiction someday if you want to, but then I'll never shut up. So, <laughs> Okay. Well, in 30 to 60 seconds, give us fiction. What's All fiction? Dickensian literature, man. Just go read Dickens. He's my favorite. I think that every person you've ever known is in a Dickens novel. I think Charles Dickens is a better psychologist than anybody who's ever put pen to page. And he just understood people and he understood how they work and how they are and how they play. And, and he wrote in archetypes, which I get more out of fiction than I do nonfiction. Because it lets you know, you know, I might be on the autism spectrum, which is probably obvious. Fiction is helpful because it lets you know how to interface with people. 
and it lets you play out these scenarios without dying, you know? Mm. And so I love fiction. And I know Dickens is pedestrian in the minds and eyes of a lot of the literati, but I everything he's ever written is just, I think, is a blessing. I like Steinbeck, yeah. too, if you want, you know, yeah. an American author. Everything he writes, I have found to be devastating, but in a really good way. You know, The Grapes of Wrath is such a hard read, especially now for some reason. Yeah. The Pearl, same thing. Like, you walk away and you're yeah. like, why did you just do that to me? Cannery Row, Mice mm. and Men. But he's fun because he does not pull punches. And he's a keen observer, again, of the human condition. And then, you know, the Russians probably do literature better than anybody, Dostoevsky <laughs> and Tolstoy, but they drain me a little more than I care to admit. Yeah, I agree. Those brothers, Karamazov, it's draining, and I'm, I'm Bro. with you. And yeah. Dickens, I didn't know what was going to happen. The Tale of Two Cities, just, it caught me by surprise how much I didn't want to put that it? book down. I really enjoyed that very much. Yeah. Uh, Charles and Lucy Darnay. Yeah, my favorite of his is David Copperfield. Okay. Also, excellent. My mom was an English teacher, so she called the classics on me at a young age. So, nerds of the world unite around Dickens. I love Dickens, too, so this is good. Question. When you hear the word eternal optimist, what might that mean to you, Kasim? I'm going to answer you honestly, Matt, because you're my friend, but my visceral reaction is naive. And that's probably an indictment on me in the way that I think, because I'm something of a prepper. Mm -hmm. Fair. Fair. I think I envy that at a minimum. I'll say that I, I would envy somebody that could assume that paradigm long-term. Something I wish I had. Yeah, and if there were a way to take the intersection of optimism, and it could be naive, we'll say that it could be, say that it is. Take that and intersect it with pessimism or realism, as the case may be. Put those together in the middle. If they were one and the same, then what might that look like? And that's what I would call eternal optimism. When they mm. are actually, we're all living in this myth and it all is the same. Once we can overcome our own stuff, if we can. And that's a big if. So having shared that and having listened to you and just this wonderful, I don't want to call it a rant. I would say this, you called your brother with a smile, a philosophical thug earlier. Yeah. Uh, if, if, if your brother were a philosophical thug, then you would be a philosophical... Charlatan. Charlatan? Okay. All right, yeah. cool. Cool. Well, Kasim, it's been amazing to have you on the show and we love you. We appreciate you. Thanks for sharing your wisdom and your journey with us. And many thanks, my friend. Thanks appreciate for having you. me, brother. Really appreciate you, Matt.